the dialectical rise of a white nationalist state, part two, indigenous resistance and multicultural rebellions. When compared to other countries that carried out colonial conquests in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and South America, the United States was not exceptional in the sheer amount of violence it imposed to achieve sovereignty over territories it appropriated. What distinguishes the U.S. experience is not the type of violence involved, but rather the historical narratives attached to that violence. From the first settlement, appropriating land from its stewards became a racialized war, civilization against savagery, and thereby was inherently genocidal. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. According to historian Gerald Horn, approximately 5 million indigenous people were enslaved in the Americas between the 15th and 19th centuries. As a result of fatal diseases, harsh labor, and violent confrontations with European colonialists, these populations declined in many places by as much as 90%. The majority of enslaved were women and children, an obvious precursor and trailblazer for the sex trafficking of today. But for the massive revolt of the indigenous in 1680 in what is now New Mexico, the toll might have been worse. Compared to blacks, Native Americans were a bargain. In the pamphlet from 1712, the price of a young Native woman was quoted as low as 18 pounds. Native workers could also be purchased with animal skins rather than cash. In a court case about this time in Charleston, a Native adult slave was appraised at 160 skins, while a child was recorded sold for 60 skins. The hides usually came from deer, but beaver and other skins could be substituted. The equivalence of pelts and people would have been the idea of the white Indian traders who had plenty of both on hand. Between 1629 and 1645, thousands of Puritans migrated from Britain to the British colonies. Even though many of them had endured religious persecution in England, once in the New World, they proceeded to impose tyranny on the indigenous. Quote, the first Jamestown settlers lacked a supply line and proved unable or unwilling to grow crops or hunt for their own sustenance. They decided that they would force the farmers of the Powhatan Confederacy, some 30 polities, to provide them with food. Jamestown military leader John Smith threatened to kill all the women and children if the Powhatan leaders would not feed or clothe the settlers as well as provide them with land and labor. The leader of the Confederacy, Wahusa Nakak, entreated the invaders, quote, Why should you take by force from us which, who, which you have by love? Why should you destroy us who have provided you with food? What can you get by war? What is the cause of your jealousy? You see us unarmed and willing to supply your wants. If you will come in a friendly manner and not with swords and guns. Unfortunately, Smith acted on his threat and initiated a war on the Powhatans in 1609. 
Moreover, the governor of the colony, Thomas Gage, enlisted forces led by George Percy, a mercenary who had previously fought in the Netherlands, to destroy the indigenous nation. In spite of the attacks, the latter managed to not only protect their grain storage buildings, they were also able to force the Jamestown settlers to retreat to their colonial fortress. After organizing more powerful alliances of indigenous nations, the Powhatans attacked all the English settlements along the James River, killing a third of the inhabitants. Subsequently, the colonists retaliated by systematically destroying all of the indigenous agricultural resources. Another confrontation occurred 12 years later, the Tidewater War, 1644 to 46. For the most part, it was driven by settler raiding parties on indigenous villages and fields designed to starve the natives out of the area. The strategy worked. The few indigenous families which remained lived under the total domination of the English colonists. Quote, just before the 1620 landing of the Mayflower, smallpox had spread from English trading ships off the coast to the Pequot fishing and farming communities on land, greatly reducing the population of the area the Plymouth colony would occupy. British King James attributed the epidemic to God's great goodness and bounty towards us. Quote, Consequently, those who survived in the indigenous communities had little means to immediately resist the settlers' expropriation of their land and resources. Sixteen years later, however, the indigenous villagers had recovered and were considered a barrier to the settlers moving into Pequot territory in Connecticut. A single violent incident triggered a devastating Puritan war against the Pequots in what the colony's annals and subsequent history texts call the Pequot War. Once again, the Puritan settlers initiated a vicious war of annihilation, killing men, women, and children, or taking them hostage. In retaliation, the indigenous attacked various English settlements throughout Connecticut. Mercenary John Mason subsequently led a force against the two Pequot strongholds on the Mystic River. One was occupied by Pequot warriors, the other by women, children, and old men exclusively. Mason targeted the latter first. Then, after killing most of the warriors, his forces set the indigenous encampments on fire, burning alive the remaining inhabitants. Quote, So it was from the planting of the first British colonies in North America. Among the initial leaders of those ventures were military men, mercenaries, who brought with them their previous war experiences in Britain's anti-Muslim crusades. Those who put together and led the first colonial armies, such as John Smith in Virginia, Miles Standish at Plymouth, John Mason in Connecticut, and John Underhill in Massachusetts, had fought in the bitter, brutal, and bloody religious wars ongoing in Europe at the time of the first settlements. 
They had long practiced burning towns and fields and killing the unarmed and vulnerable. Quote. In colonial America, class divisions were firmly entrenched. Until the 18th century, the most pervasive social cleavage was between plantation owners and white servants, most of whom would become debt slaves. Even in the northern colonies, where plantation slavery was not as widespread as in the south, Benjamin Franklin is quoted as saying in 1759, quote, most of the work here is done by indentured servants. A predominantly African labor force became necessary only when indigenous labor was exhausted through disease and genocide, and European labor gradually became inaccessible and inadequate. Nonetheless, as late as the end of the 18th century, no more than about one out of every four bond laborers were black. This meant that most were white. There was a considerable amount of collaboration among the two groups. Also, there were many occasions when free persons assisted enslaved laborers in running away to freedom. Maroon communities composed of fugitive slaves and their descendants, writes Angela Davis in her book, Women, Race, and Class, quote, could be found throughout the South as early as 1642 and as late as 1864. These communities were havens for fugitives, served as bases for marauding expeditions against nearby plantations, and at times supplied leadership to planned uprising, end quote. Chattel enslaved black people resisted their bondage in many ways. These included work slowdowns, breaking of tools, sabotage of crops and animals, murder of masters, and at least 200 documented insurrections. The most popular form of resistance was flight, that is, escape to free states and territories. Blacks ran away to Indian villages and the Creeks and Cherokees harbored runaway slaves by the hundreds. Many of these were amalgamated into the Indian tribes, married and produced children. It was the combination of poor whites and blacks that caused the most fear among wealthy planters. There were other practical concerns, too. Quote, from the planter's standpoint, there had always been one serious problem associated with indentured servitude. This system of labor did not provide them with a permanent workforce. Those who survived their term of indenture and who had the prospect of land ownership had absolutely no incentive to re-enter the labor market as hired hands. They might even go on to compete with their former masters in the labor market. Even if they didn't, the time their masters spent training them would have been spent all over again in their replacement. Quote. In 1640, the Virginia General Court was receiving daily complaints about servants escaping with chattel slaves from their servitude. Quote, Victor, a Dutchman, James Gregory, a Scotchman, and a Negro named John Punch escaped together to Maryland. Seven bond laborers, Andrew Knoxie, Richard Hill, Richard Cookson, Christopher Miller, Peter Wilcock, 
John Williams and a Negro named Emmanuel escaped in a stolen boat. End quote. Quote, in the fall of 1645, a Negro named Philip was reported to have helped a runaway European bond laborer, Sybil Ford, hide from her pursuers for 20 days in a cave. Quote, quote, some 10 bond laborers ran away together from eastern shore plantations, making use of a horse named Tom Hall and a good boat. They headed for no- points north. Although John Bloxon and Robert Hodge were taken within a week, it was four years before Miles Grace was caught. Thomas Hedrington and Robin Parker, and possibly others, were still free. John Tarr was captured, but as soon as he could, could he es- again escaped with three others. Tar was caught again, but the others succeeded in eluding their pursuers. Quote. In a People's History of the United States, Zinn cites the consternation of enslavers about the irrepressible cross-color sexual attraction among the bonded laborers. He cites how a grand jury in Charleston, South Carolina, complained about the, quote, too common practice of criminal conversation with Negro and other slave wenches in this province, unquote. Moreover, enslaved Europeans and Africans were producing many mixed offspring. Consequently, laws were passed to prevent these unions, contradicting the notion that there was a natural antipathy between the multicultural laborers. Arguably, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was Bacon's Rebellion. 106.5 WFMP, this is Community Control Now. We are doing part two of Michael T.'s paper, The Dialectical Rise of a White Nationalist State. Co-host Vincent Gonzalez, Michael T. in the building, say what's up to the people. What's happening? Also got some guest readers with us, Diagene. Say hey. Hey. Also got Jesse in the building. What up, Jess? The sky. All right. So we are going to continue with Bacon's Rebellion. The Rebellion, one of the longest, most violent conflicts in colonial America, began in August of 1676 and was led by Nathaniel Bacon. At that time, there were approximately 150 chattel slaves and 6,000 indentured servants in Virginia. About a third of the free people, many of whom had previously been in bondage of some sort, were living in dire debt poverty and taxation. Bacon, however, had descended from an aristocratic European family and became a prominent part of the colony's Privy Council. Three years after arriving in Jamestown, indigenous warriors attacked his land holdings. Subsequently, he organized an armed mass of poor people. It is likely that a fair number among Bacon's following wanted to push Indians off of desirable lands or felt an impulse to lash out against them in retaliation for recent frontier attacks. There is also little doubt that a sizable number of Bacon's men were frustrated by declining tobacco prices amid an economic downturn that made it more difficult to acquire good land. 
Valuable acreage was hoarded by those who one contemporary called the land lopers who bought up or loped off large tracts without actually settling them. The lopers had inside connections to the governor. The less connected, on the other hand, having no choice but to venture out into the frontier, that is, indigenous-occupied territory, felt they were being used by wealthy colonial leaders and landowners as a buffer between them and hostile natives. It was suspected by Governor Berkeley, even before the uprising occurred, that there would be a foreign invasion or a large-scale attack by the indigenous, which could possibly change into class conflagration. Quote, The poor, indebted, discontented, and armed, Berkeley wrote, would use the opportunity to plunder the country and seize the property, unquote, of the elite planters. Nevertheless, Bacon issued a declaration in the name of the people, accusing the governor of protecting, favoring, and emboldening the indigenous population against his majesty's most loyal subjects. Bacon had managed to muster a force of about 500 disgruntled Africans and Europeans to wage his fight. Berkeley responded by characterizing the insurgents as warlike and committed to treason. Bacon's rebels burned Jamestown, forcing Berkeley to flee the colony. Although Bacon was killed, the British crown had to send soldiers across the Atlantic Ocean to quell the uprising. It took more than a year to do so. The rebellion resounded throughout the colonies. What made Bacon's rebellion especially fearsome for the rulers of Virginia was that black slaves and white servants joined forces. The final surrender was 400 English and Negroes in arms at one garrison and 300 freemen and African and English bond servants in another garrison. The naval commander who subdued the 400 wrote, quote, most of them I persuade to go to their homes, which accordingly they did, except about 80 Negroes and 20 English, end quote. The lessons were not lost on the colonial ruling class. Our bibliography for the first two parts of The Rise of a White Nationalist State include Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism by Gerald Horn, Slaves in the Family by Edward Ball, An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Odyssey by Nathan Irvin Huggins, and White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America by Nancy Eisenberg. All right, listeners, you just heard part two of The Dialectical Rise of a White Nationalist State by our dear brother, Michael T. Say what's up to the people. 
What's up, people? Yeah, so you've been working really hard on this. I really want to uh, just pick your brain for a second here. What inspired you to take up this project of denoting and analyzing a white nationalist state? That's a good question. Of course, I've always had an interest in black history and uh, American history. And as we know, so much of it has been left out and omitted. And even though a lot of people participated in the formation of the United States, I wanted to focus on the interaction between the, what I call the red, the white, and the black. The red, the white, and the black. Yes. Yeah, could you break that down a little bit more for us? Well, the indigenous populations... Uh, the European populations and the African populations and how we all played a part in the formation of what became the United States, because a lot of people don't really understand that. Uh, it was a revelation for me, for instance, even though I've been studying this stuff a long time, but uh, information is just now coming out about how the indigenous people were enslaved. We know they were killed, we know their land was taken, but actually they were enslaved before Africans. The enslavers resorted to, uh, to enslaving us because the Indians were being killed off, dying from diseases. The white indentured servants were rebelling and, of course, what the uh, ruling slave owners decided to do was divide these multicultural labors and enlist the support of the white and, indentured servants. And it's wild. What really tripped me out was just how soon they played it. As soon as they landed on this shore, you know, they came with this, um, you know, model of human capital and, you know, it, it, it evolved over time, <coughs> mm -hmm. but, you know, they, they didn't waste any time here. You can, I mean, the way you say it, a white nationalist state, I think you can really hold that close because, as you can see, um, you know, there was one quote about how they were, uh, you know, it was an open trade of black bodies, you know, other uh, indentured mm -hmm. at that time bodies, um, Alongside any other commodities or goods, you know, that cash, ne cash, cash nexus mm -hmm. was um, felt, uh, you know, pretty early on. And um, I got uh, Diagene in the building here. You helped us uh, read for some of it. What it stood out for you? What really uh, kind of took me back was... Um, well, yes, it's not as surprising as you would think with how Europeans have treated people of color, you know, throughout history. It was just kind of like sobering to hear about, you know, just how little they thought of, you know, indigenous folk and uh, and uh, blacks or Africans of the time, you know, sell, trading them for skins. You know, it's just the horses had better, you know, lodging than a slave did or even a native person who was born and, you know, cultivated this land. Mm. It's wild and you still see those divisions to this day. And, that, and that's what makes this so uh, relevant. You know, it, it feels like a foregone time, but 
you know, we still live in some of the vestiges mm. of this institution. We are still fighting it for today. Uh, so, Jesse, anything that stood out for you? You helped us read as well. Uh, what did you uh, pick out from this? Um, well, I think the thing that stood out the most for me was the fact that they got um, indent- indentured uh, workers and black people to join together to fight against yeah. them. Yeah, isn't that wild? What what is uh what stood out for you on that? Like, did you notice anything that uh, would be relevant for today? Yeah, um, the relevant to me, really. I mean, I don't know if you're gonna tell me I'm wrong, but um, like the fact that uh, white people, like Europeans or whatever, they. I mean, I didn't. I just didn't expect because I hadn't really read uh, much on this. I hadn't really expected for them to be yeah. able to work together so, and put. So, like in history class, they usually don't tell you about that. They just say, you know, uh, Africans were brought here on a boat, <laughs> and it was hard, and they were the slaves of the white people. Yeah, yeah, but it was a little more. There's some more complexities in that division. here. So, um, I guess, brother T, could you kind of give us a little breakdown of that time here? You had this this sort of uh, mix of confluences the white indentured servants mm-hmm. and in the your paper you know astutely points out how it wasn't no pleasure cruise for them either the the early exactly. white settlers here were um, mostly under duress and then you see how they started um, really enforcing some of those early capitalist endeavors mm-hmm. um, you know very early on yes and that was an important point because again you know we never hear about the cooperation between all of these oppressed people. And I think for a lot of folks, you know, who had heard about that, the question becomes, if there was cooperation, how did that end? Yeah. How did the white people who were almost as bad off as we were, you know, because indentured servitude was no... was no piece of cake. It sounded like a sucker's bet. They would pay... We You see this in the... Um, the present-day manifestation of, like, human trafficking where mm-hmm. they'll pay your way, but, um, you know, economically speaking, you'll never get ahead. I mean, it took, you know, on, on paper you could buy your freedom just the same, but how often did it take a, a indentured servant to pay off that debt to America? Mm-hmm. It was, you know, dozens of years, time. you know, so it was yeah. almost a... a a near de facto uh, slavery, mm-hmm. if you will. Exactly. And a lot of white people don't know this because you talk to a lot of them, they either think they were all slave owners mm-hmm. and we were all <laughs> enslaved, uh, but they you know, don't know their history that, uh, like I say, they were only a couple of notches up from slavery. And as we proceed on with this paper, we'll see how the ruling slave owners enlisted them into aiding them to suppress the slaves and the indigenous people and how that happened. That didn't magically happen. You know, they started getting privileges. You know, we're all white, so, you know, you help us keep them down, we'll give you a few more privileges. And we see that to this day. Wow. Yeah. More people need to know that, you know, and we don't have to... People correctly at one time saw that 
the class divisions ruled mm. out enough to where you know Bacon's Rebellion, where they were, it, it took a lot of. Uh, I didn't. I knew of Bacon's Rebellion, but I didn't know it took that much firepower to get them down. I mean, they almost. Um, Burn that whole colony to the ground. Yeah, a whole but, year mm-hmm. rebellion. Yeah. Imagine that. But uh, the yeah, what was I you thinking? Like, I was just thinking about you know where that division happened. I believe it probably got a little uncool to to be connected to people of color at mm. that time. Yeah, you know, you were looking to up for upward mobility, mm-hmm. and you know the the white capitalists weren't gonna hire you on if they knew you were friends with the you know mm-hmm. runaway negroes it was easier. of the time. It was so easier it was for easier to fit in to you know become that oppressive you know person than it would be to help. But um you know we're looking forward to part three. We're coming in strong. Community control now. Um any last words for anybody here? Well, I just hope that people stay tuned, and I want to thank um, our guest readers, Diogene and Jesse, for participating in this. And uh, we look forward uh, to continuing it in the next episode.